You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Brony-Peters. When I was younger, all I wanted was a dog. But lucky for me, I got the next best thing. A Tamagotchi. I was obsessed with it. I'd spend hours cleaning up its poop, feeding it tiny pixel lollipops, and trying my best to keep that virtual pet alive. Well, today, a Tamagotchi feels like unnecessary digital maintenance. To seven-year-old me, it was the most exciting thing in the world. In today's episode, we're revisiting the magic of our oldest and fondest childhood memories. In our first story, Tom reflects on 55 years of the iconic children's program Play School and its role in raising generations of Aussie kids. There's a bear in there. It's the song that is recognised by everyone in the country. As it plays, children's ears prick up instantly. Play School has just turned 55 years old and is continuing to charm families to this very day. It's Play School. But what is it that makes Play School so special? One of the show's magic ingredients is the removal of the fourth wall, as the adults talk directly to the audience. Hello. Hello. We're going to make some Play-Doh today. And this recipe tells how to make it. Right. You ready, Philip? Ready, Trish. What does the recipe say first? Um, four cups of flour. Four cups of flour. This was a huge experience for actor Noni Hazelhurst when speaking to Starts at 60. It changed my life in a sense because A, it taught me how to communicate with a camera as opposed to hide hide from it, which actors do. Um, It also taught me that television is a medium that evokes a response and people try and say, oh, no, you're not influenced by television, people aren't influenced by violent films. Well, why advertise if you're not influenced by it? So that's crap. Um, But it also made me want to be an advocate for that age group because I understood for the first time, you know, that that preschool age group is so crucial. The brain makes more connections in the first two years of life than in all of the rest of life put together. So if you miss those, if you miss that input with a young child, the rest is band-aids. Um, it's really, really important. Well, Banana and I have just arrived at this very nice restaurant. <clears throat> I'm so hungry. You right there? Good. Where is the waiter? The team behind Play School strive to create an enriching learning experience that's both entertaining as well as authentic. Host Karen Pang, speaking to Hope 103.2, has a deep understanding and appreciation for the life lessons that the program strives to teach. You're there to um, to give children uh, that time in their lives, permission to play, uh, to be creative, um, to teach them things that they can learn. And the things that we teach them are not just, oh, how do you, you know, cook something or whatever, but it's about like helping people. Like, so you're asking people if they want help or the joy of actually what that means to share that, um, you know, help. It's awesome that way because there is some of it, there's, you know, there's a sense of um, teachings of, you know, what it is to live together and how we do it in a fun and creative way, but also with a, a responsible way too. And I think it's just, um, and the people that you meet and, and you think you're part of something that has just been going on for so long and you know it works. Um, so it's a privilege, yeah. 
Laura Stone is a part of the early childhood advisory team who help out with the educational perspective for play school. I was able to sit down and speak with Laura as she spoke through the processes that she goes through to create positive learning experiences for the young audiences. One of the greatest elements of the show that I love um, is the removal of the fourth wall whenever the host talks directly to the camera. What do you think yeah. is the importance of this? It's interesting you should say that. I w was reading a bit about it the other day, this idea of parasocial interaction. It is really interesting. So that children who are watching at home, especially for the under fives, have that feeling that they are being spoken to directly. But it takes away some of that pressure potentially to react in the real world. You know, when you're still working out your social cues and responding to people for real, um, I think the opportunity that they have with play school where they're being looked at directly, being asked a question, having the time built in, waiting for the response. It's a pretty special thing. I think play school, lots of shows um, do, do try it and I think lots of people are successful. But I think that with the way play school does it, it's always been part of the formula, right? And it's just, um, it wouldn't be play school without it. Yeah, you're right. It's been there since day one and I think yeah. it's stood the test of time so well. Yeah. And it's one of those things that from an early childhood education point of view, that's my background is teaching. Um, it's just the part that I love so much because this is the bit that you feel just really connects to children in a very, very meaningful way, I suppose. So it allows them to feel an extra layer of emotional connection not only to the ideas being explored in the show, but specifically to the presenters. Morris, Big Ted, Little Ted, Humpty, Jemima and Mika. We're going to play a game with these toys now. Morris, Big Ted, Little Ted, Humpty, Jemima, Mika. Let's see if I can remember. Morris, Big Ted, Little Ted, Humpty, Jemima and Mika. That's right. Simon has to shut his eyes and count to five, then I'm going to hide one of the toys and he has to guess which one is missing. You're going to play two? Mm-hmm. All right, here Shut we go. your eyes and count with Simon. Here we go. No looking, Simon. But I think what we always do is, obviously, you come back to play-based learning. So if you are demonstrating something, you're providing a certain commentary around what you're doing as opposed to explaining what you're doing. Now, that I think that's pretty much key because if you start to get too much into the explanation factor, that starts to make it sound more teachy. And then you have that extra layer, which I think can sometimes be taken for granted, which is the use of the live piano, because that really adds an extra layer to the meaning that children are making, because the fabulous Peter Descent, who's there on the piano riffing the whole time, just watching what's going on and reflecting that with the chords that he's hitting on the piano and the little melodies that he's creating, that's adding an extra layer to the overall engagement factor and potentially the learning that's going on. 
you know, because it, it is kind of engaging children um, in very different ways, depending on their different learning styles. Children might not be as tuned into the dialogue, but perhaps it is the sound of the piano that really helps to uh, bring them into what's going on in that little moment. There is a deep root to the nature of how Play School operates and works as a show. But how has it progressed through time? Meet Dr. Cathy Harrison. She is an early childhood educator and a senior lecturer at the Australian Catholic University. Acting as Play School's early childhood advisor for 22 years, she was involved with many fundamental teachings that shaped a generation of Australians. Play School is such a cultural institute um, how do you think the formula thrives and remains fresh today? Well, I think it stayed fairly consistent with some changes. And given that you're in education, you probably understand that as theoretical perspectives changed in education, that impacted on play school. So there was a shift away from a very developmentalist, generalised, normative focus to more taking in the socio-cultural context of children and recognising that context vary. Um, so less of the universal child and more tapping into the individual. So that was probably up until about the last four or five years. And then there were some changes in the mo most recent time. But I think up until that point, at least, there was a very strong focus on relationship, the relationship between the presenters and the children, the toys and the children, and very much the child was at the centre. If we move too far away from what was core for the children, I don't know if we'll have the same intergenerational impact. So if it goes to more one-off thematic type things without strong underlying substance, I don't know if it will sustain itself. Were there any particular points, I guess, in your work history where you thought this is a really unique teaching point that we can address? Oh, yeah. Lots of times, and there were deep conversations about being very sensitive and thoughtful about the implications of what we did. So, for example, about uh, how we portrayed disability. I remember we had this deep discussion about do we portray this child who is disabled um, awkwardly trying to get into a pool, or do we just display, uh, portray him swimming happily, freely? And we decided we needed to show the hard stuff as well as the we needed to show the reality of the struggle as well as the um, his freedom in the water. Um, so, you know, quite conscious decisions about pushing the edges in a way, not sugarcoating. So, you know, I was um, an advisor when we did the two mums and it was a real um, attempt to, to broaden the frame to look at all those various socio-cultural contexts that children grow up in and just to validate um, to the families of, um, you know, children with gay and lesbian parents. It was very carefully thought about. And the only line was, I'm going to the fun park with my two mums. It's always had that just right balance of light and shade where it was relevant. Yes. And again, taking time over something. So we might have a whole series, and we did, where that was situated so that across five programs, there were lots of nuanced uh, input about families. So it wasn't just a one-off you know, hit you between the eyes. It was, yeah. you know, I think in the same series, we had a, a grandmother getting married 
and again, it was to just challenge stereotypes and to broaden the frame of what children are engaged with, rather than narrowing the frame, which sometimes happens on television. And in that very developmental stage of the young mind, you're very much raising a generation of children with this understanding of the world. That's what we're trying to do, and to allow them to not have to um, filter their curiosity, but to acknowledge that children do see difference and are curious about it, and then to respond to that not in tokenistic ways. And same with you know the art and the music, there was a real commitment to raising the bar, not minimising the child, so not colouring in, and but really tapping into the creativity of what might be possible. I think a child knows like when they're not being spoken to in the most fruitful way possible and they pick up on it quickly. Absolutely. I wrote a paper and I've written quite a lot about play school back because um, I'm sort of semi-retired now but it was called From Entertainment to Engagement to Empowerment and I was arguing that play schools pitched towards empowerment so that at the end of the program the children go away not just entertained or engaged but with lots of ideas for subsequent exploration. And if a child chose to leave the program, that was really a plus. If they got up and walked away to play, um, that was like empowerment. So that's sort of where we were pitching it, that we wanted to give children lots of stuff to work with and families. Yeah, you're planting the seed and getting them to get yeah. up and go, yeah. Yeah. Do you like to dance around with your teddy bear? Wriggling and turning, doing the teddy bear twist. Do you want to twist with me? Come on. There's a little dance and it goes like this. Everybody loves to do the teddy bear twist. What are the particular teaching points that you recall that felt that must be included in the criteria for an episode? For me, how you do something is as important as what you do. So there would always be trying to position yourself of as how a child might feel. So even in a story, for example, if one of the toys was left isolated and abandoned, you wouldn't do that for too long and you'd want to bring the toy back and um, create restitution. We would never have humiliation or shame. We would never have making fun of a child. One of the particular things that I really admire is that whoever is in a story or in an episode, the adults, the, the guests and the toys are all spoken to as equals. Yes. Yes. What do you think has been the greatest achievement of play school? Oh, I think it's longevity and it's commitment to children. That essentially the child, um, and from the beginning, it wasn't to sell product or it was about supporting children and families. So this image of the child as a valuable citizen, as a valuable member of the community, not as an appendage or future economic value or a marketing tool, but a child as a valuable human being. You know, that was really taken seriously. As we look back on 55 years, we hope that play school can go on and on and on. Sure, when we cast our minds back, we can recall things such as Big Ted, The Round Window, or The Rocket Clock, or our favourite host. 
but deep down, play school may have had a profound impact on who we are as people today. That story was produced by Tom Denham. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. One of the things I remember most about childhood birthday parties is the food. There were the chocolate crackles, the honey joys, the party pies, the lolly bags, and of course, the birthday cake. And when it came to birthday cakes, there was one recipe book that topped them all. The Australian Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake Book. Hannah spent a lot of her childhood on a boat, so she didn't get to celebrate her birthday with the usual festivities. That was until her 10th birthday when she finally figured out a way to get the party of her dreams, complete with the classic Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake. You always remember the first book that you fell in love with, the first book you read cover to cover over and over until the pages tore. For some, it was Harry Potter, for others, a Roald Dahl classic, The obnoxious liars amongst us will mention Tolstoy. For me, it was the Women's Weekly Children's Birthday Cake recipe book. There was the sugary goodness of the caterpillar cake, the fuzzy koala cake, and the holy grail of cakes. The swimming pool cake, complete with chalk malt sticks and lime jelly. I devoured that book. Literally, my mother often caught me licking the pages. But as much as I loved it, I'd never actually had one of these cakes because I'd never had a birthday party. You see, I was homeschooled. I wasn't just homeschooled either. I was homeschooled on a tiny boat sailing around the world, just my mum, my dad, my sister and the Pacific Ocean. Why? I don't know. Because my parents were a bit weird or maybe on the run. Could be either, could be both. It was because of this nautical living situation that I had never had a birthday party. Not a real one with party bags and friends that aren't related to you. For most of our lives, my sister and I were each other's only party guests, which was fine, except that my big sister's idea of a party game was convincing me that if I jumped overboard, maybe I could meet a mermaid. No party meant no fancy cake. As my mum would say, you simply don't make a Women's Weekly children's birthday cake if you're not having a party, because it would mean someone would have to find all the ingredients on a remote Pacific island, and someone would have to lug them back to the boat, and that same someone would have to cook an extravagant recipe in a kitchen the size of a toilet, and that someone's not doing it. She's not. But all that changed a few weeks before my 10th birthday. We had just arrived in a little fishing town in Mexico. I had taken a break from drooling over cake pages and turned my attention to our family photo albums. I was flicking lazily through the photographs when I found one that made my blood boil. My big sister, as a toddler, 
sticking her chubby little hands into a choo-choo train cake. A choo-choo train cake that I recognised immediately from my favourite book. The unfairness bubbled up in my throat. I marched the photograph up to my parents and shoved it in their face. What is this? Their heads bowed into feet. My father put a comforting hand on my mother's shoulder. We knew this day would come. She nodded solemnly. Hannah, why don't you go choose a women's weekly children's birthday cake? But once I'd tasted the sweet nectar of manipulation, it was hard to stop. Mum, since this cake is going to be so big and impressive, maybe we should invite some other people around to sing me happy birthday? Now, I'm sure my mother's initial reaction was to advise against finding strangers in Mexico and inviting them round for tea and cake. But before she could protest, I reminded her, it sure would be sad if no one came to my 10th birthday. Mum helped me make up little invitations and we scanned the harbour, assessing the potential guest situation. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in a Venn diagram of the yachting population and 10th birthday attendees, there's not a lot of age crossover. But nevertheless, we loaded into the dinghy and made our way around the boats. We invited an old lady with three boat cats, a middle-aged couple with no boat cats, and an old man with a boat monkey. That's 100% true, by the way. His name was George and he lived full-time on that boat. George was an exciting addition to my birthday party, but I was about to hit the jackpot. As we approached the final boat, I saw a figure, too small to be an adult, but too big to be another boat monkey. He waved, bonjour. Nino Sauvage was eight years old and wily. One of those kids that always seems to have a scab on their chin. In the lead up to my party, we became fast friends. I filled him in on my plan to manipulate my parents into throwing me a totally unmanageable birthday party in this remote Mexican fishing village. He smiled cheekily. I assume there will be party bags? You better bloody believe it, Nino. Straight away, he proved himself to be quite the accomplice. Nino was French, in case you couldn't tell from that impeccable accent. And what would have seemed unreasonable for me, he could pass off as French brazenness. My parents would soon learn that he had pretty high party standards. Is there some kind of theme for this party? What are the activities? I assume there will be ice cream. Together, we convinced my parents to move the party from the boat to the beach, which seems logical. But you're thinking about the wrong Mexican beaches. You're imagining the sweeping white sand and crystal clear waters of Cancun. The beach in this particular town was largely used by fishermen to gut their catch and was covered in fish insides, tequila bottles, and most unsettlingly, a whole stack of shark heads. But Nino and I were a formidable duo. It would be a shame to spend your 10th birthday cramped on a boat. We were drunk on power. We got my father to buy a suspicious piñata from a man on the street. My sister was even roped into preparing the party games. We were unstoppable. 
The morning of the party, Nino and I met on the boat to bask in our victory and make paper chains. The safety scissors we were using were proving themselves useless and making a mess of the decorations. Wait one moment. Nino skipped out of the room, reappearing moments later with a huge, very sharp pair of adult scissors. How did you convince them to give you those? I didn't. I took them. Looking back, I realise this was a real fork in the road of my life. I was about to cross the line from manipulation into dangerous deception. And it felt good. We had manipulated our way into the perfect party. Now we had stolen adult scissors. First, we would conquer my 10th birthday party. Next, the world. I stood at the precipice of arch villainy ready to dive in. But the thing about boats is that they rock. And the thing about adult scissors is that they're really, really sharp. A wave hit the boat, Nino stumbled forward, and we watched as the blade went straight into my leg. Deep into my leg. Like Icarus, we flew too close to the sun. The rest of the night was a blur. I remember a lot of faces hovering over mine. I remember a wet and stingy dinghy ride ashore to a run-down little hospital. No one there spoke English or French, but luckily a small child with a hole in her leg is the universal signal for help. A very young and very apologetic doctor took one look at my gushing leg, another at his desperately under-resourced hospital, and gave us a box of Band-Aids. Apparently, the risk of infection was too high for stitches. So I didn't have a birthday party that year. Because the party I had manipulated my parents into, you know, the one with a bunch of strangers and a monkey on a fish guts beach, well, that's exactly the kind of party you can't attend with an open wound. We didn't smash the piñata. Nino got in trouble for stabbing me in the leg and wasn't allowed to come over. The one thing I did get, though, was a swimming pool cake. And look, my mum's not Mary Berry, it wasn't perfect, but it did have green jelly on it. My Women's Weekly children's birthday cake book went missing after that. Probably for the best. It had led me down a slippery slope. Just in case my parents ever listen to this, I want to take the opportunity to tell them that I am so, so sorry. And I will never, ever emotionally manipulate you like that again. After all, how could I? As a reminder, I have this big, fat scar on my leg that I got as a minor in your care.
That story was written and performed by Hannah Pembroke, with sound design by Ryan Pemberton. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun. And our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer. Our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. And Wing Kwong is the All the Best mentee producer. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Brony-Peters. Thanks for listening.